From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. This year alone, almost 300,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in the U.S., making it the most common cancer in American women. We don't have to wait until Breast Cancer Awareness Month to talk about it. For this program, we coordinated with the American Cancer Society to assemble what I call my pink sister circle of survivors. This is a personal and important discussion for me as I myself begin my second battle with breast cancer. This discussion is raw, real, and inspiring. We share our struggles, pains, and triumphs. I personally hope you will come away with a sense of hope as you learn from the lived experiences of other women. That's all coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. In the past, I have been transparent with listeners about my battle with breast cancer. Five years ago, I learned that I was diagnosed with DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ. It was a mass that took up about half of my breast. Um, the battle, which we will talk about during this show, was uh, something that I thought I was done with. I thought everything was over. After you know, the diagnosis and the two surgeries that I had, uh, my doctor and I just agreed, okay, we're just going to um, watch things. We're going to um, make sure that you have uh, screenings twice a year, and um, we'll go from there. So up to the fifth year, which was this year, I had my screening, my six-month screening, and my chat with my oncologist. And she said, okay, well, we're going to just go once a year now because everything's been looking good. And things didn't look good on the last screening. So I have now been diagnosed with not one but two forms of breast cancer in my right breast. I do have DCIS in one area and invasive DCIS in another. And it's all over the place. So it's not good news. But I have always been of the mindset that if you share, you learn. And if you share, you also can help other people. And that is what this program is about today. I have assembled what I am calling my pink sister circle of survivors. This show was actually inspired by one of the survivors that's here. And um, we had a conversation because I felt <laughs> I had a moment last week where I was in crisis. And I needed to talk with someone that understood what I was going through. Talking to my husband wasn't doing it <laughs> that particular day. Talking to a friend wasn't doing it that particular day. I said, I'm going to reach out to the woman who handed me her card when I met her at an American Cancer Society event. And she handed me her card and said, you call me whenever you need to talk. I'm here. And I have to tell you that a lot of people say that when you're going through something. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they really want to hear from you or they want to talk to you. And when I reached out to this person, she was open and she was very supportive, and she was the inspiration for this particular show. My pink sister circle of survivors consists of Dr. Generosa Grana. She is a breast cancer survivor, American Cancer Society spokesperson, and medical director at the MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper University Medical Center. Also here in the circle is Lynn Alston. She is a survivor and founder of 
Hugs Around America Foundation, and she is an international best-selling author of A Hug Saved My Life. Also in my circle is Jamil Rivers. She is a metastatic breast cancer thriver, an American Cancer Society spokesperson, and founder of the Chrysalis Initiative, which we will learn about today. And also Tamika Bryant is in my circle. She is a breast cancer survivor and influencer. Welcome to the circle and welcome to Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thank you. And the inspiration behind this program, as I was describing earlier, is Lynn Alston. So I'll talk with you first. Thank you, Lynn. I want to first thank you for taking my call. I was in tears when I called her and she did not hesitate to take my call. And we had a very good discussion and I felt better after having spoken with you. So I just want to say thank you right off the bat. You're welcome. Why don't you, since we're talking with you right now, first of all, just talk about your experience with breast cancer. Well, uh, going back nine years, I remember the day, Sunday, March the 9th, 2014, is when I received a hug from a mentee. And she hugged me so hard that I was begging for her to release me. That's how hard the embrace or strong the embrace was. That evening when I was getting undressed, I was in the mirror and I saw a golf-sized lump and I was able to see it with the naked eye sitting on top of my right boobie. And instead of going to my breast with my hand, it was as if I was in the twilight zone. I went to the mirror because I couldn't believe what was sitting or protruding from my breast. That started the process of getting a mammogram, 2D mammogram. A week later, I get a call back. They saw something. I come back and get a 3D mammogram. A week later, I go back and I have a biopsy. And within four days, I was diagnosed with triple negative stage three breast cancer. And so, hence the book's name, A Hug Saved My Life, because really, a hug started the process. Um, I would not have detected that um, lump on my own because two years prior, I was downsized from my job and I had no insurance. I had not gotten a mammogram. Mm. Um, I had been healthy all my life. Who needed COBRA, right? And so I skipped the two years and I started that process and had that diagnosis. And to hear cancer attached to your name is something that I don't wish on anyone. Absolutely, Lynn. Um, We're definitely going to talk about that moment when we all got that call, got that diagnosis, and we're going to come back to that. Um, I want to also now uh, just go to uh, Jamil Rivers. Uh, Jamil, talk about your experience. Mm, Well, my experience was, you know, I was the typical busy, married mom, executive, three boys, and my husband had already gone through cancer, so he is a colon cancer survivor. Um, And that particular winter, we had just moved into a new home. You know, the kids are going to school and then colds are lingering throughout the house because, you know, of course, the kids bring home germs. Um, Everyone caught their cold and it went away. I caught my cold and it didn't go away. So I was coughing and sneezing for over a month. And so I went to my primary doctor and she gave me an antibiotic. Um, She gave me an asthma pump, still two weeks of coughing. And so I asked for a chest scan, and um, I had also felt a little pinch on my side. It wasn't painful, but it was just something new. 
And so fast forward, I get my chest scan, I get my ultrasound, and I have lesions in my liver. And so I'm, you know, thinking, well, why would I have lesions in my liver? But then my head went all the way back to 2015. So this was 2018 when I'm getting the um, ultrasound. But in 2015, I had a miscarriage. And I remember, you know, um, my breasts had, you know, prepared for pregnancy. And then um, when I lost the baby, well, babies, I was pregnant with twins. I'm so sorry. Um, Oh, my goodness. The left breast went back down to normal, and the right breast was still a little firmer. And I remember saying to my OBGYN, well, you know, it's a little firmer. It hasn't gone back down to its normal um, size. And she said, oh, well, don't worry about that. You don't really have any breast cancer history in your family. Um, She said that. That was always the overactive breast because I did breastfeed my boys, so she wasn't too concerned. I then asked for a mammogram, and then um, they did the mammogram, they did the MRI, and of course they did a biopsy. And um, it was confirmed in March of 2018 that I had a metastatic de novo, so stage four from the start because they had already spread um, metastatic de novo breast cancer, invasive ductal carcinoma which was ER positive, PR positive, and HER2 negative, so hormone positive breast cancer. And it had already spread everywhere. So not just my liver, but my bones, my lungs, my sternum, my lymph nodes, everywhere except for my brain and my spine. And so that was... This was 2018. Yeah. I'm looking at you in awe (laughs) because you're... Gorgeous. Oh, thank you. You're so put. You look like you don't look like you are have been going through or are going through a thing. And at that time, I felt absolutely fine, except for this lingering cough. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking I'm supposed to be the healthy one, you know, because my, you know, I'm working full time. My husband is disabled due to his cancer, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm I'm just shocked. Like, why would God bless me with the love of my life, this beautiful family, and now I have stage four cancer? You know, so, of course, I'm thinking I'm going to die. And, um, you know, the woman who was the radiologist at the cancer center took my hand and she said, um, we have a whole floor upstairs with young women with metastatic breast cancer. So she said, you're not going to die tomorrow. You're not going to die next week, you know, but we'll take it day by day. Wow. Wow. A couple of things jumped out at me. You asked for a chest X-ray. You asked for another scan. It's surprising that the doctors didn't automatically order that. And, you know, Dr. Grant, I have a lot of questions for you already. We're going to come to you in a moment, but I do want to get to Tamika Bryant and now briefly hear your story, uh, Tamika. Thank you. So I am a 10-year triple negative breast cancer thriver. Um, Diagnosed in 2013 uh, during my first mammogram. My OBGYN had actually advised me to get one probably like two to three years prior, but I kept putting it off. I was a mom. I was working multiple businesses. I was heads of organizations. I just didn't have time. It wasn't a priority. And for me, I'm like, women don't get breast cancer until their 40s. Mm-hmm. So I'm in no hurry. Um, and so what happened is a mammogram truck was coming to the area, and I scheduled the appointment um, after they pestered me because I had no interest. And then the appointment got canceled because the truck wasn't ready. It was all these things happening. And I was like, good, I have so much I need to do. I'm not concerned about this. And so the lady called me and she said, you know, we have the truck up and ready. You know, here's your appointment date. And I was like, I guess. All right. If I can get there, I will. Not a big deal. Um, and what prompted me to go was I knew I was coming up on my yearly visit with my OBGYN and he was going to pester me about it. He was literally going to be like, there's no mammogram in here. What's the deal? And he says this to me every time I would go. Yeah. 
So I was like, you know what? Let me just get it done. And I remember the day that I went leading up to it, I was physically exhausted. Um, I would take my kids to the bus stop in the morning, come back home and lay on the couch and sleep until I needed to pick them back up again. I would force myself to like do work and things of that nature as needed. And I would literally push to the very end. Like if I had a deadline at noon at 1130, I was like, okay, get this done. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh, my blood sugar's low. You know, it's, I'm anemic. That's what's happening. I just need to sleep more. These kids are running me ragged. My husband's not listening. No one is doing what I need them to do. I'm tired. Yeah. Well, appointment came. Um, I got there at the wrong time because, you know, I was doing 800 things and didn't write it down. Mm-hmm. And so the woman was like, no, your appointment is at 2. And I think I was there at like 10. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm coming back because I have a, a meeting that I need to get to. It's important. You know, it's about my money. So I don't know that I'm going to be here. So my girlfriend met me and was like, let's just park your car here mm-hmm. so that we're guaranteed that you'll come back. And I was like, it's okay. Like, I'm not 40. Like, I'm fine. Well, I go in and literally as soon as I took my clothes off, I felt something. I was like, what is happening? I was like, you know what, God, you funny. You funny. <laughs> so when she did the mammogram, I said to her, I said, you know, I felt something as I was taking my clothes off. I don't know what it is, but can you let me see the scan? And she's like, we really aren't allowed to let you see it. And I was like, but it's my breast. I'd right. like to see the scan. Matter of fact, I need a copy of it. So she gave me all these things and she kind of like paused as she was doing it. And I was like, yeah, something's not right. So I look on the screen and I have, I'm a scientist by trade, but I have no knowledge of what a tumor looks like. None. Mm. So literally it just spoke to me like, yeah, girl, you need to follow up on this. And so I pointed at it and I said to her, what is that? And she said, I'm really not qualified to answer that question. And I was like, okay. And so then, you know, go on the steps of going through, you know, the biopsy and all of that. And I remember the day they called me, I was sitting in the living room. Um, My daughter and my husband are in front of me reading and the phone rang. And something was just like, move. Don't answer the phone, sit in there, move. So I answered the phone. I said, hello. She said who she was. I got up and I walked outside. And the first thing she said to me is, she's like, Tamika? I said, yes. And she says, well, this is so-and-so from so-and-so's office. Just want to let you know that you have triple negative breast cancer. Any questions? You're kidding. I said. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is the way she told you? exactly what she said to me. And I said, excuse me? I said, well, like the weather forecast, I I can't stand it. Listen, that's exactly how I felt. I said, well, triple negative. So negative is good, right? She's like, no, but you talk to the doctor. I said, well, he should get on the phone right now because you just called me. You didn't ask me where I was, what I was doing. I could be suicidal. I could walk on the middle street and kill myself. You have no idea where I am emotionally with this information that you've just given me. And she's like, well, do you want to talk to somebody? I was like, yes, your boss. And so... I completely forgot that I had cancer at that moment and literally was like, you can't call another person like this. Like, you just don't know what people are experiencing and where they are in their lives. So that's what started my journey. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 103.9 FM. Dr. Grana. Let's first start off talking about the different diagnoses that we've heard about here. We've heard about triple negative. We heard about DCIS, metastatic. Can you explain those? DCIS, or stage zero breast cancer, is actually the earliest type of breast cancer, often picked up not as a mass, but as an abnormal mammogram with calcium. It can be one little spot. It can be multiple spots, as you described. But we think of it as the most curable form of breast cancer because 
surgery and radiation, depending on the choice, is the answer. And the rate of recurrence is tiny, 1% to 2%. Now, the problem with DCIS, though, is when it recurs, it can be invasive half of the time. And the other problem with DCIS is that the woman has an increased risk of developing cancer of the opposite breast. Any woman who has breast cancer, no matter what type of breast cancer, has a risk of developing cancer of the opposite breast, and that risk depends on her family history, her age, and other factors. And you go from there, the earliest form, to metastatic, where the cancer has spread out of the breast and out of the local lymph nodes. Now, Jamil's very different. She talked very wisely about the fact that she's de novo or new. Um, The majority of women, 80% of women in the United States, don't present with metastatic breast cancer. 80% of women with metastatic breast cancer had breast cancer before and then develop metastatic disease as a symptom or sign of their original cancer. And then triple negative is so fitting that we're talking about triple negative because in the African-American community, triple negative is more common and it's more common in young African-American women, not older African-American women. So what is triple negative? Estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2 new receptors are all negative. It is not hormonally triggered. It is not environmentally triggered. Uh, You know, I think the reality is we don't know what triggers uh, breast cancer in general and in particular triple negative. It is more often associated with hereditary breast cancer. So any woman who has triple negative breast cancer, even if she doesn't have a family history, up to age 60 should have genetic testing because there is a possibility of BRCA1, BRCA2, or other genes. So you're running the gamut from DCIS, least aggressive, triple negative, more on the higher risk side, and then metastatic, which is your ultimate stage. Well, thank you for explaining all that. I I do want to talk about um, your treatment plans, how everyone came about their particular treatment plan. And the reason why I want to talk about this is during my first go-around, I had so many people... Tell me what I should do. And when I mean tell me what I should do, tell me what I shouldn't do, of course, we all have learned there are no two similar breast cancer cases, okay? Everyone's different. There are different things that affect it. The average person does not understand that. And I had people try to tell me to fruit and vegetable my way through my breast cancer. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Eat this, this, and that, and you'll be fine. Watch this video. Did you see this about cancer? This is what they're trying to do. I was hit with so much crazy, well-meaning crazy, but it was just so much. Were you hit with that in your personal lives, people telling you what you should and shouldn't do? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think for me, because... I talk on social media all the time. I felt it was very important that I let people know what I was going through. So from the time I went into the mammogram truck, before I even knew that I had breast cancer, I told people, hey, I'm going to get a mammogram. If you haven't gotten a mammogram, get a mammogram, you know, the whole thing. And then, you know, when I found out I had it, I was like, this is what the situation is. So I have people that maybe I don't even know personally, but I'm connected through social media, Mm -hmm. sending me videos, telling me to go to Mexico and get this Uh. treatment. Telling me, um, oh, it's because you eat a lot of candy or you should stop eating this type of meat. You know, make sure you're organic. Uh, Don't do chemo because, you know, it kills everything. And so it was everywhere. I mean, from people that 
I didn't know to people that I did know to people who I felt like you said well-meaning a lot of people like my brother-in-law especially and to this day he still sends me things Mm -hmm. Um, if he sees something on YouTube or if he reads something he shares it with me and he's like I know I get on your nerves but I just need you to just know and see what's going on and then I have to tell people I do know what's going on because I need to be able to share information as a patient advocate and letting people know you know what options are out there so I am reading I am learning But just be mindful of what you're telling people because you don't know how it's going to be received. And someone may look to you and say, oh, I think you know a lot. And you're telling them, don't do chemo, eat this or go get this treatment or let them do this with your body. And then cancer progresses. I know someone right now going through that. And, you know, she and I had a very personal conversation where she's decided she does not want to do chemotherapy. And I told her, I said, you know, I support you. But I have no information for you. Right. I said, I don't know anyone that has done that and has been successful. Okay. I said, so I can't even offer you a resource. So I think you just have to really be mindful of who you're listening to and where you're getting information and definitely have a conversation with your medical team. Yeah, I think it was important. Me, I am one of those type A project manager type people. So when I was diagnosed, I cried the first day, but then I thought of my babies. And so the most important thing for me was how do I make sure that I'm getting the best care for what my diagnosis is. And so I went to the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, where it is literally telling you, based off of your diagnosis, the type of breast cancer you have, this is the national guidance from the National Cancer Institute mm-hmm. as to what your standard of care should be. And that's what I, we always tell women to make sure that, you know, because sometimes you could go to a cancer center or, you know, 75% of people are being treated at community hospitals where it might not be an academic cancer center. And they might not be on the latest and greatest as far as innovation that's best for you. Mm -hmm. So that means look up those NCCN guidelines, know what the standard of care is. It's almost like you're checking the doctor's work where you could say, well, I have, you know, stage four metastatic de novo, um, hormone positive. What are the options? And there are a menu of options, but what does the data and research show is best for me? And me in particular, I was interested in what are the treatments that are most effective in black women? Mm -hmm. And because there's such a low number of black women participating in clinical trials when it comes to breast cancer research, we don't know about the efficacy. There are some Mm -hmm. drugs that are actually more effective in black women than white women, but we would not know that. So I actually looked in the European and African clinical trials to see which of the treatments I would go for and what was most effective. So my initial treatment was chemotherapy Mm -hmm. um, because of the fact that, you know, I thought that was the best because I was premenopausal, so under the age of 40. And so I wanted to really, you know, (laughs) attack it as best as possible with a powerful punch. And then I also had to advocate for myself to um, have my ovaries removed because my cancer is hormone positive. And it literally took me going back and forth for about a month. Because they said, well, we don't typically do that with women that are metastatic, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm thinking if the hormones are is what's feeding, you right, know, my right. cancer, let's take it out. Take the mothership out. Right, you know? right. Why not? <laughs> right, right, kids. right. And so after that, with me being on chemo for a year, having my ovaries removed, I reached no evidence of disease. So I don't have any visible tumors that are visible on a scan. I still have metastatic breast cancer, of course, and still have to be monitored and screened, Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to make sure I attacked everything at it. 
And so I know that's really scary and it's a lot of information. And a lot of times you're going to have to hear this over and over again. A lot of women that we work with, they didn't even remember that they were metastatic or they thought, oh, well, I'm metastatic, but it's, it's not what that means. And so it takes a lot of time to really comprehend a lot of these terms and what does it mean for your care specifically. But I think if you reach out to the support resources within cancer centers, mm-hmm. then also support resources like the Chrysalis Initiative and American Cancer Society, Metaviver, you know, you don't have to be alone yeah. in this at all. Good to know. Good to know. And, and Lynn, information, things that people have told you, I'm sure you experienced that as well. Absolutely. Uh, when receiving the diagnosis, I had no clue. I didn't know what triple negative was, stage. I didn't know any of that, but I knew I wanted to live. So I became my best advocate. I went home and I Googled clinical trials. Didn't know what that looked like, but I found one for breast cancer. And I printed it out and took it back to the doctor and says, listen, this is a clinical trial that I want to be a part of. What does that look like? Because my goal is I want to live and I'm looking for members to join Team Lynn. Are you Team Lynn? Mm -hmm. And so that was the conversation. So they looked at me, African-American woman, talking about a clinical trial. They had not started that conversation with me. I brought it to them. They left, came back and says, well, no, can't be a part of that, but you can be a part of this clinical trial. And so sometimes we don't take part because we're not asked, because we don't know about. And so in my journey, I became an advocate for clinical trials. I sit on the board, um, co-chair for Community Advisory Board for Fox Chase Temple Health, Community Ambassador for Temple and Fox Chase. Fox Chase was my uh, treatment hospital. Mm -hmm. So I had eight rounds of chemo. And when it came to radiation and they gave me six weeks, they wanted to do six weeks every day of radiation. I had big girls. And so the goal was to have the same position every day to get the treatment. So I had to lay down on my back and the girls had to be in the same position every day. Well, when you lay on your back, if you are a big top heavy, you know, your girls go and they do what they want to do (laughs) when you lay down. And so director of radiology said to me, in good conscience, I cannot treat you here. And so I'm going on this journey. I don't know. I just know what you said. I needed eight rounds of chemo and six weeks straight of radiation. But now they're talking to me about the proton machine. I don't know what that is but I'm learning and I'm listening. And so I was then released from there and transferred over to the director of radiology at University of Penn, where you lay on your belly and your affected booby goes into a hole where the radiation is just going through that booby. It's not touching your lungs, your rib cage, your heart, where it can affect and you are walking away with a whole nother Um, set of disease. Exactly. And so you learn and as you say, you come and now you're regurgitating what you learn to individuals who don't know. And we're not told. We don't know. And so the eight rounds of chemo and the six weeks of radiation is based on my Caucasian sister who was diagnosed with the same 
triple negative in the same stage. And so they're crossing their fingers, not literally, but crossing their fingers, hoping that it will work for the African-American because we don't show up in the numbers. As Jamil says, we have to begin to partake so we can show up in the numbers. So they will have data that can help us, right? But more importantly, it will help our community. Mm -hmm. Triple negative is running rampant. And now money is being tossed to that disease because it crossed barrier line. And so now we have our other sisters who are being diagnosed. And it's not funny, funny, but they'll come and say, well, maybe down the line I have, we're related. And I was like, but whatever works to start getting the research done in this area, because that's what's giving us the elevated rate of dying of curable cancer because we're not in the numbers yeah. and we're not getting those things. That's exactly what happened, though, that literally across the color lines. I know you wanted to keep it cute, but we should keep it real. <laughs> um, as an advocate, I do a lot of grant reviews. So I sit on a lot of panels where that's what we talk about. And literally in the past, I would say five years, 90 percent of the grants that I'm reviewing are from triple negative. And that was the one thing that I said. I said, you know, it's unfortunate that this is where we had to be. But now that it's crossed the color lines, there's more stake in the game. And I'm here for it. I think there's, though, another reason why there's such an interest in triple negative. And it's the fact that it's the one entity that we know the least about and that we have the least options. So hormone receptor positive, Jamil. We have a panoply of hormonal drugs, chemotherapy drugs that are very effective. All of the new uh, sexy drugs that have just been approved are for hormone receptor positive, early stage or advanced. Mm. HER2 new positive, the other subgroup of breast cancer, we have amazing drugs, wonderful activity. Triple negatives, what's been lacking? Uh, We just didn't have the target. So I'm not sure it's all who has it. I think partially it's what we... The other cancers we know much more about. Well, it's good to know, and I reported on this, that uh, the Cleveland Clinic is in stage two of clinical trials for a vaccine for reoccurrence of triple negative breast cancer. So that, you know, little silver lining in the cloud, you know, hopefully that continues and it's effective. So that's, I guess, good news, right? Absolutely. Dr. Grana, I don't want to wash over the fact that I know you're a doctor and you're here to give us the clinical side of things, but you are also a breast cancer survivor yourself. And being a doctor, I'm assuming, doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't. It prepares you more for what's to come. Um, It definitely, when I looked at that mammogram and saw what I saw in the mammogram, I knew going in that there was going to be a cancer there. I just didn't know invasive DCIS, what would it be? I think it's made me a much better doctor, though. I think it's really now when I talk to a woman and sit down and talk about the surgical options and the other difficulty, I really see myself in her shoes. I see the difficulty she's going with. I uh, hear her angst that she's dealing with expanders and implants and, and the decisions that have to come with all of that. So it is what it is. I think I always somehow knew that I would uh, get breast cancer. I don't know why. I don't have a family history. Uh, but it just happened. Well, I have to say that all of that it, it is just so much at one time. You know, everybody was sharing the moment that they had that diagnosis. That first time that I got that news, you know, I was at work and I answered my cell phone and all I heard was the type of cancer you have. That was it. I know there was talking. 
all I heard was cancer. And I'm just sitting there going, no way. Did he just, what did he just say? And then I heard, do you have any questions? Please repeat everything you just said. (laughs) I didn't hear anything, you know, but everything just slow motion. And like the second time, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to be prepared. If I hear this, uh, all right, I've heard it before, so I'm just going to be ready. And same thing happened. You know, they pulled me into the room and they're going, oh, we see something. And then there are test after test after test. You know, my DCIS presented as a mass and it normally doesn't. I thank God that it did or else I wouldn't have known because at that, um, the mammogram, everything was fine. Oh, there's nothing here. I'm like, oh, yes, there is. And my doctor's like, go back. You have to get a 3D. Nothing here. Go back. You have to get a, you know, ultrasound guided. And then after the needle biopsy, then it was like, yes, it's here. So there are no absolutes, I guess. I'm just glad it presented the way it did. Um, But getting that news, even a second time, I was still not prepared for it. I want to talk about the support system you have. You know, we're here in the pink sister circle of survivors, which feels really great right now, I have to say. Um, but how important is it to have a really good support system? And, and did you all have good support systems? Well, when I uh, found the lump, you know, I had to navigate the system on my own. So that meant I didn't share in the beginning. And so um, I didn't have the bandwidth to help you through my diagnosis. Like I had to do the doctor who gave me the diagnosis. He came in a room, um, and this is after going week after week, coming back and forth. He sat down, and he says, Lynn, you have cancer. Okay. So he's leaning forward. I'm leaning forward. He said what he said, and I heard cancer, cancer, Mm -hmm. cancer. Okay. So the way my mind worked, all right, what's next step? Let's get it. Let's get it. Well, Doctor is still leaning forward. So I went, and you know, I'm mimicking his body language. Mm-hmm. And I, well, listen, doctor, should I get my affairs in order? He says, no, 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 you're going to be fine. We just need to, I said, well, listen here, doctor, I need you to get yourself together because if you break down, I will break down. So he had to leave the room to go get reinforcements. I'm stuck with the walls bouncing, cancer, cancer, <sighs> cancer. So after calming him down, you know, I started to cry. And so that was in April of that same year. I waited until after I had my lumpectomy in June to have the conversation with my mom. Okay. And it was the day after that I began to share after I had the lumpectomy. And I says, listen, mom, you know, just had a little surgery, all is well, you know, But I was able to have the conversation after that. I could not. So at the time, it was just me and Jesus. Mm. And I prayed and I said, Jesus, listen, this is what I need. I need to live. And if you allow me to do that, to be here for my mom, I will share my story to the moon and back. And so I have not shut up since because (laughs) he kept his into the bargain. I have to keep mine. And so that's how I uh, found out. And so now in my advocacy, when I'm speaking in front of uh, doctors or patients, it depends. You know, I curtail my conversation and I say, doctors, I need you to not, you know, you rehearse this. You come and it's 
on repeat for you, the doctors, to come and give a diagnosis. It's new to that patient. And so I need every doctor to realize that every patient is an individual and different and needs to be handled. Um, And if you're unable to do that, then maybe you're in the wrong business. And so the doctor who I had to help him through my diagnosis he says to this day, you're my favorite patient. I said, I guess I am. <laughs> you know, I had to yeah. comfort you. My goodness, my goodness. <laughs> now, Jamil, I know uh, that's kind of the work that's reflected in the Chrysalis Foundation. And, you know, that we were talking before the show about patient navigators. And I know that I rely heavily on mine because she has, she's a lifesaver when I'm about to lose it. Like, okay, what's going on? I haven't heard, heard anything from anybody. You know, there's a lot of waiting and tests and results and doctor schedules and all of that. Things are not happening as fast as you want them to. It's like, I have cancer. Everybody get it together and figure it out now. Of course, it doesn't work that way. Um, talk about your support, if you could, and how you help uh, clinicians and people deal with patients and support them as well. Yeah, when I think about so my diagnosis, you know, my husband was disabled and I was the caregiver. So um, I've really leaned on everything out there. What can I expect? I wasn't able to stop work because I had just started a new job five months prior to my diagnosis. So they're a great group of folks, but I didn't know if I would be eligible for FMLA. So I got my eyebrows tattooed, I got a wig, and I just continued to go to work. And so going to work, work full-time, three kids and a disabled husband, I'm thinking, okay, I don't want him to be overwhelmed or have a relapse or a recurrence with his cancer. Um, He also had a liver transplant, so I'm really trying to make sure like he's good so that he doesn't have to be overwhelmed and inundated with trying to take care of everything. So suddenly... So I leaned on American Cancer Society. I didn't know what to expect. You know, they have an app and all the resources. And so I pretty much signed up for everything. (laughs) said, you know, and it ended up being great because I got my house cleaned. I got free supplies. I got um, rides to chemo. So that way my um, kids didn't have to have the memory of getting lugged in the van and having to pick up mommy. And she's, you know, nauseated and sick and not feeling well. They don't have that memory. So American Cancer Society would pick me up from work, take me to chemo, pick me up from chemo and take me home. And so just little things like that as far as um, even play dates with the kids. Um, So because I was so tired, um, I connected with Unite for Her, which helped me with um, just how to eat when you're going through chemo. Um, How do you eat as far as the diet when you're going through cancer? So all that knowledge was really helpful for me. And then living beyond breast cancer, connecting to them and learning, how do I live with this for the rest of my life? Because I think that's also something where people think, well, if I just get through this the period of time when I'm in treatment, then I'm done. I ring the bell and I go on with my, no, (laughs) that's not what happens. So I think what I did for myself is what the Chrysalis Initiative represents. So basically you have our app where you go to bcnavi.com. You now know standard of care, Um, If you are a participating cancer center, you get to know who are the people that I need to go to at my cancer center for what. We have a breast cancer guide for dummies, you know, so Mm -hmm. you know what all these different terms mean, you know, what to expect. You can uh, keep your appointments in there. You can put your questions in there and you're connected to a coach. So it's a, I would call a specialized patient navigator because the person has gone through breast cancer themselves. And we try to match patients with people with similar lifestyle, similar age group, Mm -hmm. similar diagnosis, similar stage, similar subtype, 
And, you know, you meet with so many people on this pathway to yes. cancer where you have an oncologist, a radiologist, mm-hmm. a social worker, a patient navigator, um, a financial person. I mean, there's so many people that you have to get to know. Yeah. You're going into these spaces vulnerable. But with our coaches, you have somebody that pieces it all together. And then we also have um, our wraparound services. So we work with cancer centers where behind the scenes in BC Navi is a care tracker. So my little checklist that I created for myself, like, let me make sure I'm on this. And that's what we do for our patients. And so unbeknownst to them, sometimes they don't even realize that they could be vulnerable or steer off track. And so we're making sure that we alert the cancer team and them actually, you need to address this or you need to make sure that you pay attention to this. And then that way they're adhering to their treatments. They stay on them longer. Um, We have a lot of women that will just try to like give up on their treatment and not adhere to it. But we're like, if it's working, there's a workaround, okay, for that nausea or that neuropathy or that fatigue. You know, there's resources Mm -hmm. and support that you can have. So I would say the Chrysalis Initiative is the Underground Railroad Mm -hmm. for women with breast cancer. That's great. Because if something happens, we're on it. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. One of the important things is making sure you have the right team around you, the right medical team. It's uh, complex because the radiologist who often gives women a diagnosis doesn't know the woman. But once you make it into the breast world, your medical oncologist, your surgeon, your radiation oncologist, your navigator should be functioning as a team. You should be having your case reviewed. Uh, There are tumor boards at which cases are reviewed. So the concept that your care needs to be coordinated, that you're getting state-of-the-art care, that those individuals are openly answering your questions. We're not living in the world of old where you are told to do something and you go and do something. There should be a dialogue and a discussion about what's the right treatment for you? What are your options? Because oftentimes there are options. It's not a you must do this and this is the only way we can treat your cancer. Uh, some women want to keep their breasts. Some women want a mastectomy. Uh, some women have a preference in terms of certain chemotherapies that may have less hair impact. So I think it really begins with putting together a team that you trust that you can communicate with. Yeah. Tamika? So I think for me, I guess it kind of started off a little different because um, when I was diagnosed, I did have a friend who was diagnosed 10 years prior to my diagnosis, same diagnosis and everything. Mm-hmm. So I kind of leaned on her and I had been doing some cancer volunteer stuff with her. So I knew about the support groups and, you know, information I could find from American Cancer Society. But when I was diagnosed, I, you know, went online and I, you know, got some information. And in the process of my diagnosis, I recognized that the team that I was working with, they were overworked. And I didn't feel like I was getting the attention that I needed. I did not have a patient navigator. And then when I switched to the current um, facility that I'm at, I wasn't assigned a patient navigator at that point either. So I kind of managed everything on my own. Like I had a binder and all of that, and I tapped in with people. And then just from, I would say, like the support groups that I joined and other survivors that I met along the way, we kind of shared information and, you know, went through and did what needed to be done. And, you know, it would be like maybe a friend would be like, hey, I remember you mentioned 
X, Y, Z, what happened with that? And then I think for me, because I felt like I needed to be accountable to social media because I had already brought them in on this journey, I needed to kind of keep them in on what was going on and people would send me messages and felt like everybody became like my aunt or my best friend because they're like, well, my grandmother had breast cancer and this is what she did. Did you do this? Or someone was just diagnosed. Can you help them? So I felt like because of that, I kind of had to like stay on track and figure out what was going on so that then I could share the information. So I guess I kind of created a support circle. And then like, I had my sorority sisters and some of the other groups that I'm in who came in and was like, we don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would say, well, here's the things that I need to be working on. And what was absolutely beneficial to me was resources, um, like Jamil had mentioned, from American Cancer Society because... You know, I didn't want to take my kids to chemo, even though they wanted to go because they just wanted to see what I was doing. I didn't want them to go. I just did not need that memory. I remember the one time my daughter did go. She walked in the room and walked back out. And it was a lot for her. She just she just wasn't prepared for it. And I just was like, I don't ever want them to have to go again. And I didn't want to feel like I was a burden and asking my friends, oh, well, can you sit with me at treatment or can you do this? So knowing that people would come and volunteer and take me for rides and sit with me um, if need be or clean my house, grocery shopping. And so for me, after I had surgery, it was back to school time. I have no time to go and target and buy school supplies. So everybody that I knew about school supplies, I'm still to this day do not need to buy school supplies because (laughs) of the number of school supplies that I got. So organizations that, you know, that do that type of work absolutely um, were a tremendous help, which is kind of, you know, why after my diagnosis, I started like volunteering for all these organizations and really just giving back because they definitely made life so much easier for me. Wow. We really have to be our own advocates, but I have to say that it's exhausting. It's exhausting because, you know, dealing with it while you're trying to advocate for yourself is just emotionally draining, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I want to talk a, a little bit about how people interact with cancer patients. What people say, and I may have been one of these individuals at some point before becoming a cancer patient myself, because people, I think they, they, they mean well. I'm going to say they do mean well, but when I remember talking to you, telling you that I said, people are starting to talk to me as though I'm dying. And I said, am, is it me? Am I crazy? Or, and of course, your response was, no, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> they do that. But we have to help them through um, that process, you know, and sharing with them. I hear you. I understand. But you don't understand what you're saying is. Mm. And so my mission in life is to help us take or remove the stigma out of the word cancer. Yeah. That fear that comes along and says you have cancer is unto death, which is not the case. And as I shared with you on the phone, as eloquently as you shared with me how you felt, you need to have that same conversation with that support team. Um, to let them know because they're unaware Mm -hmm. and they believe that they're helping and they believe that they're comforting. And and some people just shouldn't have that job, (laughs) but they don't know. And so this is where we have to be our best advocate and say what you're saying right now is hurting my spirit, my mental, my emotional. And so I'm good. And if you can help me this way and you're helping them help you. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn that. Um, 
But I had a, a nurse who's like my daughter. She's my cousin who came along and helped me through that process. So she understood. Um, and then the doctors, I had an amazing team, and I was treated at three different hospitals. And I followed their cues, and I listened, and then I learned. And just like Tamika, I was coming back from maybe my second round of radiation, and I get a call from Atlanta. My cousin says, listen, I need you to talk to my godmother. She was just diagnosed with cancer. I know you can help her. Okay. I can give her the information I received that I learned in my two rounds of chemo. (laughs) I can help you through. And that's been my life for the past nine years. Calls after calls after calls after calls. And so you learn to listen more than you learn to speak. Mm. And you meet the individual where they are. And so if they decide that they did not want to have cancer, I have an analogy, well, that I use, and it's a little off the beaten path, but it works. And they say, well, I'm just going to go organic. And I said, well, you have cancer now. So eating organically won't help what's already there. And I say, it's like you coming home and finding that you have a burglar in your home and you call the alarm people to set up the alarm versus the cops (laughs) and then secure the home with the alarm system same with cancer get the cancer out and then we can have conversations on changing eating behaviors and and dietary you know but attack the intruder Mm -hmm. first exactly exactly jamil what about you have you experienced uh, different instances where people say the wrong thing. You know they mean well. Or they're, they're just not coming across well. Absolutely. <laughs> I always say I've learned that cancer is clarifying. Hmm. So meaning a really big part of managing your cancer is carving out what you need and making sure that you have joy. So cancer is so clarifying. The people that are just not equipped will disappear. So mm. when I was first diagnosed, all of a sudden, oh, you can put these people on a milk carton. They were just nowhere to be found. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so you know who is riding for you based off yes. of who shows up. And I had some people that were just there. I don't know how to help you, but can you just tell me how I can, you know? And actually occupying the kids, helping with the dishes, driving me someplace, just listening to me. Um, you know, all that is helpful. Um, And then you have folks that, you know, want to give the advice. I kind of compare it to when you first become a mom and everybody tells you what type of mom you need to be. It's exactly like that. So, (laughs) well, what you need to do is, and then, you know what, my best thing for that is start giving them some of the cancer terminology and see how much they know. Oh, you don't know about that? Right. So how are you going to give me advice on what I need to do about my cancer? So then that minimizes that right there. Um, And then, you know, sometimes it's just, again, how you were saying, like your husband, they want to help, they want to fix it, but they don't, you know, his cancer, not so it was easy, but he did his chemo, he did his surgery, keeps on going. But with breast cancer, you have the initial treatment, but it's that maintenance therapy after that, and then the screening, and the anxiety, and the side effects, and the quality of life. <laughs> and so with me, I always look like this, even during chemo. So my wig was tight, my eyebrows was tight, so nobody could tell, well, you don't look like you're going through anything, but right. I felt... You know, it was, it was definitely challenging. But so people, they'll come to you and they expect you to be the same way. 
well, you don't look like you need help. So my family actually told me that. They said, well, I didn't know what to do. Well, you didn't look like you really needed any of that help anyway. And I've been always a pretty strong, independent person. Um, but a lot of times we have to be vocal about what it is. If I need my husband to just hold me, that's okay. Mm, right. If, right. you know, my kids, I yeah. find like they're these amazing, compassionate, empathetic little people. <laughs> and I say like working with people with cancer in the cancer industry or researchers, doctors, they're the most incredible people. And usually it's because they were um, impacted by having a loved one with cancer. And so I'm looking at my kids like, who are they going to grow up and be these amazing people when they grow up? Yeah. You know, so my husband and we kind of were caregivers to each other. I'm trying to be a better friend, better sister. Cancer is clarifying. So it makes you want to think about your legacy, what you need, but how can you be of support to other people? And those people that are kind of struggling are a little dense. You know, you just let them know, well, this is what I need. This is what helps. And this is what doesn't. Right, right. But do not compromise on what you need and who you are. So a lot of people now, they don't like the new person that you evolve into. But guess what? If you want to be in my space, if you want to be in the mix, then it has to be not just beneficial for you. It has to be a benefit to me as well. That's right. And That's some people, right. they're just not prepared for that. That's right. I see you are not. Yeah, I mean, she is hitting all the buttons. Like, I feel like I don't even need to say anything. Um, What I will say is love the analogy about the new mom. Um, And I think for me, it was a lot of new mom information for people who didn't even have children. Mm -hmm. So you're just going by what you think is supposed to happen. You don't even have a kid. You have no knowledge of any of this, but you have lots of information for me. Right, exactly. And I think the worst thing is when they're like, well, you know, my grandmother had cancer, and this is what happened. I'm like, oh, okay, what happened with your grandmother? Well, you know, she died. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. That is so comforting. Um, And then the whole friend thing. So I absolutely found out who my friends were through treatments. Absolutely. I mean, and these are people that, I am a great friend. Like, I give all. Everything I have, you can have. It is yours. And it was so clarifying yet hurt when I recognized that these same people that I had given everything I had to would in turn just disappear. Like, I just couldn't understand it. And at some point, I even said, you know what, I'm going to give them some grace because I recognized that when you hear that somebody has cancer, the first thing you think is, oh, this person's going to die. And a lot of people don't deal with death well or they don't deal with illness well. So I said, you know, I'm going to grant you some grace in this period of time to kind of figure out what I need or what you need. And, you know, maybe we'll cycle back as friends. And I tried that with a few people. And I recognized that they just were never my friend. I was their friend. Um, And so it became so clear. And as Jamil said, you know, a lot of people don't like the new you. I know a lot of people don't like the new me and I am so okay because I like the new me. And I say, you know, if it doesn't you, right? Yes. Love the new me. If it does not fit my needs, then I don't have any time for it. Life is short. Um, And as I've been saying lately this week alone, you know, what you do with the dash, you know, that time between birth and death counts. And I'm planning to make certain that my dash counts. So if that means that I can't sit and listen to you complain because, you know, something to me, you know, just doesn't make sense or whatever. I can't use my time for that. I need to make certain that things are moving and that when I do leave this earth, I am leaving a legacy that I can be proud of, something that my children can be proud of, my family, my parents, whomever. So if you don't like the new me, that's okay. And I just had to be okay with it. Yeah. Dr. Grana, you know, how I know doctors 
Um, and your team also have to know how to support patients. What's the proper way for people, even family members, from your doctors to your family members, friends, the proper way to support and, and offer help to cancer patients? I heard so much already about <laughs> um, what can be done wrong and what should be done right. I think the best way for a team of physicians, navigators, et cetera, is to listen, to find the patient where they are and then figure out how to support them in their journey. I find, though, that in the African-American and Hispanic community, and I'm Hispanic, mm -hmm. myths are a problem that we have to spend a lot of time often talking down or debunking because we have patients that come in with that idea of, I'm not going to treat the cancer, I'm just going to do organic, or mm -hmm. mammograms yeah. uh, for the Hispanic woman, mammograms, oh my goodness, you're going to have a mastectomy if you have a mammogram. And so really spending a lot of time educating women, yeah. even when it's at the community level, talking about screening and why you should be screened, why you should look at your family history to determine what your screening should look like, and then moving into the cancer treatment to say, how should your cancer be treated? We really need to be aware of how those myths are playing in and affecting them and helping respectfully. The key is you need to be able to let them be open about their feelings, open about whatever myth they happen to be hearing, and then figure out a way to talk around that and bring them along on the journey. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to close pretty soon. I, I wanted to talk about how this all, everything affects relationships. Um, I know my husband is getting the brunt of all of my emotional roller coastery ride everything. He, he just gets it all because he's the closest to me. So sometimes... I'm having a good day. Other days, everything is, is his fault. and But he kind of just takes it all gracefully, knowing that, okay, she's having a good day today. Um, but um, this does affect your relationship with your kids, your family, your, your friends, what have you. And, of course, like you all said, that you pretty much learned who your friends were going through all of this. As far as your relationships, though, how did it affect your relationship? Or what did you learn about your relationships uh, your closest relationships going through this, like your husband, you and your husband, supporting each other, both going through things and supporting each other. That's such a powerful team, I have oh, to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was in a strange way blessed because he had gone through it. Right. So um, me, when I'm, of course, externally, I'm outside, I look fine. But when you're going through chemo, I, I thought I looked, you know, horrible. And I, you know, he helped shave my head you know, when my hair was falling out. Mm. And so, of course, I'm not really feeling very beautiful. I'm not really feeling too great. But he, you know, just kept affirming me and, you know, being my cheerleader every day, whatever it is that I needed. And it was great to have a partner who held it down where I fell short. And so that's how we compliment each other, where I'm picking up where he's lagging and he's doing the same and we're taking care of these kids and we're <laughs> doing yeah, what we need yeah, to do. Yeah. And, making sure that we're staying on top of them. And so it's we complement each other where we're always, you know, he has his bad days, I have my bad days, you know, um, because I'm in treatment for the rest of my life because I'm metastatic. And, you know, there's certain days where, you know, I feel great and other days, oh, today's not so great. But it's being able to communicate that, being able to be forthcoming about what I'm going through and communication is key. It is so important and not just with your um, partner, but also with your friends, your family, you know, and I yeah. think 
therapy, psychotherapy, social mm-hmm. support, yeah. all of that is important when you're going through a cancer diagnosis. A lot of cancer centers will have social workers and also psychotherapists to help you deal with all these different emotions and new things that you have to think about. So death and life and who am I? And what is, you and all know, that. All, all of those that. things. Yeah. Who am I as a, you know, a person in this relationship? And what do I want to leave behind? What is important to me? All those questions, all those things you have to explore. And I think having a partner that, you know, we're, we're kind of both on borrowed time now because the median survival of metastatic breast cancer was three years. And now I'm living with metastatic breast cancer for five you know, and him, he had a liver transplant. He wasn't supposed to live beyond, I think, 25, and he's 41. <laughs> so it's, we're just kind of like, all right, we're taking it day by day, taking care of these kids, doing what we got to do, raising these incredible people. But then there's also just the things of, you know, men wanting to, you know, get frisky and you're not in the mood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> and how, you know, and then that changes because, of course, hormone positive breast cancer, I have no hormones now. So my libido is like, You know, it's almost like trying to eat when your stomach doesn't growl. You have no, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that your sex life has to be buried. It's just just an adjustment. So now, you know, I need a date night. I need attention. I need affection. Right. It's kind of like you need the slow burner to (laughs) get the libido going. It's just not like how it was before. So it's those type of adjustments and then communicating to the person because we find at a lot too, where men are like, well, you went through the chemo, you went through the surgery. Oh, yes. All right, let's get it cracking. Let's get it popping. Like everything should be back to normal. Mm -hmm. But no, there's Mm -hmm. going to be adjustments as you also get to learn about your new body and, you know, just all all that is normal. So just lean on to those supports in order to get through that. And it's scary to be honest, but be honest with your partner and your friends and let them give you what you need. Yeah. Perfect advice. Well, Lots of resources to go through here, and I want to get through everything so everyone gets all the information they need. I know I'm going to be taking notes as well, so let's start with Lynn. Let's get the information for Hugs Around America Foundation, how people can contact you and find more information, and where to buy the book, A Hug Saved My Life. Sure. So the web address is ahugsavedmylife.com. Instagram is ahugsavedmylife as well, and um, we're having a community event on September the 10th at Northeast High School out in the field, and it's called Moving for Wellness. It starts from 10 until 2. Okay, got it. Thank you. And Dr. Grana, where can we find out more information? MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. Uh, On our website, you can get all kinds of information about our breast cancer program, a tremendous number of resources that are offered to all of our patients and non-patients. They're open to the public. Got it. Thank you. Jamil? Oh, well, uh, we have the chrysalisinitiative.org, so www.thechrysalisinitiative.org. But the easiest one is www.bcnavi.com, so bcnavi.com. And Jamika? Uh, you can find me online at Life and Pumps, that's L-I-F-E-I-N Pumps, P-U-M-P-S, or on Instagram at Tamika Talks, which is T-O-M-I-K-A Talks. Dr. Generosa Grana, Lynn Alston, Jamil Rivers, Tamika Bryant, thank you so much for being a part of my pink circle of sisters and survivors, pink survivors, and uh, continued success. You all are beautiful, strong, and just so inspiring. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>